You're listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the Internet to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web shapes popular opinion, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com. Harvard scholar Kevin Lewis, who is involved in a study on how personal tastes, habits, and values affect the formation of social relationships, goes on the record online. Someone who has a, a very, very large network, um, is people probably like a look on this with a little more skepticism. If someone's running around with thousands of friends, uh, you know, they probably don't know them all. And so it's kind of this informal knowledge as well of the network um, by users. And thank you for downloading this episode of On the Record Online, the podcast that brings you the story behind the story. If this is your first time listening, we do in-depth, one-on-one interviews with journalists from the mainstream media, as well as, from time to time, conversations with bloggers, podcasters, and newsmakers about how technology is changing and threatening to disrupt the mainstream media business as we know it. My name is Eric Schwartzman. I am the host of the show, also managing director of Schwartzman & Associates, a Los Angeles-based boutique PR agency, and founder and chairman of iPressroom Corporation, which helps organizations integrate the web into their marketing communications and PR initiatives uh, with one powerful dashboard integrating all aspects of new media communications um, into one easy-to-use point-and-click software as a service uh, on demand. Uh, you can find out more about us at www.usroom.com. Today we have a one-on-one interview with Kevin Lewis. He is a scholar at Harvard University, and a study that he's doing uh, on Facebook uh, was featured on page A1 of the New York Times on December 17, 2007. Uh, it is a study about how personal tastes, habits, and values affect the formation of social relationships. Um, And uh, I had a chance to speak with him uh, for about 20 minutes about uh, what he's learned from this study, what some of his biggest surprises are, and where he sees social networks headed. And we are going to play it for you entirely unedited after this. Don't be left behind. Get the latest online PR tools and services from iPressroom. Powerful, easy to use, available on demand. Extend your sphere of influence online with iPressroom, tools for online media centers, virtual private press rooms, RSS news feeds, podcasts, and more at www.ipressroom.com. iPressroom, always on, even when you're off. Kevin Lewis, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Now, um, I read about the research that uh, you and your colleagues um, at Harvard and UCLA are doing yeah. uh, for the sociology departments on 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 Facebook and, and user behavior. Tell us a little bit about um, the studies that you're involved with and uh, and how you came to be involved with them. Uh, well, a couple of years ago, um, my collaborators, Jason Kaufman and Marco Gonzalez, uh, Jason's a professor at Harvard, Marco's a fellow grad student, um, became interested in, in studying taste among college students. To what extent uh, you know, do people with similar tastes hang out? Are there taste subcultures among students? Um, and they approached me with the idea of, of using Facebook to study this. And so you know, I said this sounded fantastic. Uh, I'd been totally unfamiliar with, with network analysis to this point, but um, it sounded exciting. 
uh, Andreas Wimmer was visiting at Harvard at that time, and he and Nicholas Christakis um, soon got involved. And so we developed this data set. Um, the original intention, again, was to study taste. Uh, but, you know, Andreas is more interested in race and ethnicity and networks, for instance. And so um, once we compiled this data set, we've kind of branched out and used it to number, uh, study a number of different topics, um, taste on one hand, you know, race and ethnicity and social networks on the other. And so it's um, really become quite a, yeah, quite a project. Now, before you started, were you an avid Facebook user? Uh, <laughs> Like many college students at that time, um, yes, it, it, I believe it was launched in 2004, so I was just about finishing undergrad. Um, and, it, you know, it's kind of slow to pick up, but especially over the past couple of years, uh, you know, usership has just exploded as it's expanded, um, you know, beyond college students to the public at large. And, uh, you know, I, I think Facebook cites over 80% um, penetration among college students in the country, which, you know, is, is amazing um, by these standards. So um, given... Uh that you were using Facebook for social networking before you started the research. Yeah. And now you are actually analyzing data about how people use Facebook. What is the one biggest surprise uh, that you found from the research? Wow. Um, you know, let's be honest. Uh, the, the biggest question we got and the biggest question I had myself starting out is, is you know, to what extent can you, can you take these relationships, these friendships online and, and generalize to real life, right? You know, do, do Facebook friendships actually mean anything? Um, you know, people have so many Facebook friends, and it, it seems to be just this online relationship. So, you know, perhaps my biggest surprise is that, you know, we, we do, in fact, find um, that these, these Facebook networks exhibit properties that, we, that, you know, researchers have been studying for a long time in, in actual social face-to-face -face networks. Um, you know, different uh, racial, um, ethno-racial groups, you know, uh, have different network sizes. Um, people share tastes at, across Facebook friendships. And so um, it, it, it kind of validates the idea of using these, these um, friendships to study meaningful relationships in the first place. So would you say that um, Facebook in some way levels the playing field for young people to, to be social and be more social? Whereas, you know, in the past it might have been a little bit more... Uh, difficult to walk up to somebody and, and meet them because there's a certain feeling of vulnerability if they reject you in public. And of course, if you're rejected on Facebook, well, I guess there's a record of it, but <laughs> maybe it's not quite as humiliating. No, and in fact, if someone rejects you, I think you don't actually even, even get a notice of them. That request just kind of disappears, so you're absolutely right. Um, so, so I do think it, it, it is, you know, it does level the playing field in some sense, right? Um, you know, at, at the same time, we have to remember, you know, the access to Facebook is still, um, as, as researchers have pointed out, concentrated among certain groups at certain colleges. Um, so, you know, I, I do think it helps out in that. But and also, at the, on the other hand, there's, there's research showing that, you know, Facebook is used primarily to maintain existing friendships as opposed to form new ones. And so it is kind of this, um, you know, this balance on one side between new opportunity and a level playing field. And on the other side, uh, you know, is, is the Internet or Facebook friendships is just a space where, you know, existing inequalities are reproduced. Um, you know, this is a, a question people are very interested in, obviously. And what, what is your uh, bias my bias. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, the past few years, I've, I've you know learned very quickly that trying to have biases and and really you know both is probably the answer in most cases. I mean, um, the the inequalities that exist in access and and in actual social networks is important, but at the same time, you know, I think this is this is very important new opportunity. Um, you know, Facebook uh, both both complements real life, um, both is is kind of a, a beast of its own, right? And so it's, um, it's, it's, it's something researchers are, are just now starting to deal with, and it raises an entirely new set of questions that we haven't seen before. 
Do you see any evidence that people who may be less socially inclined in the real world feel a greater need to build larger friend networks on a service like Facebook or MySpace? Well, um, you know, our, our research uh, has not explored that. They would, they would, you know, this requires people to go out and, and you know, talk to people in real life about their non-Facebook networks. Um, but I believe other researchers are, are you know, finding uh, that Facebook is an important social so- source of social capital, right? That you can, um, that, that, you know, being active on Facebook is, is associated uh, with a greater sense of well-being. And so it requires that kind of data to go out and talk to people and see, you know, what their real lives look like beyond Facebook. And, um, you know, this is one limitation of our study is that the data we draw upon uh, are almost entirely, you know, from the network itself, which has its advantages and its disadvantages. But we're not able to speak too much in the, um, you know, these students' lives beyond, you know, what they show us. <laughs> Do you think that um, if an individual were to build a network of a lot of friends on Facebook, mm-hmm. that it might give them a false sense of popularity? Do you think people feel more People feel a sense of obligation to accept a friend request more so in Facebook than they might in the real world? Uh, yeah, I, I think absolutely. I mean, um, people do take these relationships rather casually, right? Uh, you know, it, it's, I think it's probably very rare for people to reject friendships. At the same time, um, you know, it, it's kind of taboo to reject, the, you know, accept the friendship of someone you don't actually know or befriend someone you don't actually know. And so, um, again, it becomes a question of how to interpret these ties. Uh, you know, they, they suggest at least acquaintanceship. These are people you know, even if not people you're close friends with. And, um, you know, students also know to take these with a grain of salt, right? Someone who has a, a very, very large network um, is people probably like a look on this with a little more skepticism. If someone's running around with thousands of friends. Uh, you know, they probably don't know them all. And so it's kind of this informal knowledge as well of the network um, by users. What about uh, with, um, say, Barack Obama? I know uh, there's uh, been some discussion about the fact that he has nearly a quarter million friends on his Facebook page. Yeah. I mean, do you think that in that case, it's a symbol of strength? Yeah. Absolutely, I would say so. I mean, um, and you know, you have a you have a different case there where where you know they're online, particularly with the with the intention of of you know, getting support. Um, so I would say, you know, the friendships you know for Barack Obama online means something very different than than friendships you know for the rest of us who are on Facebook. So now I know you guys have been studying um, how how taste uh, impacts friendships and relationships. Yeah. So absolutely. beyond the obvious. What factors determine whether a person has a private or public profile um, on, on their Facebook or MySpace page? Uh, private, uh, let's see. So, of course, we can only speak to Facebook, but um, we, we've actually found some interesting things. I mean, um, unsurprisingly, uh, you know, women are more likely to have a private profile than men, but um, we find that that privacy profiles are associated with with friendships. So, if you're uh, if your friends are more likely to have a private profile, your Facebook friends, and you're more likely to have a private profile yourself. Um, in addition, uh, you know, we were able to combine this network with university data on um, housing relationships, which is kind of cool. And so we find that you know, some, if your roommate has a private profile, it's even more likely, um, more associated, even more strongly associated with you having one as well. Um, even more interestingly, we find that, that students with private profiles kind of have a unique um, standard taste profile as well. So you know, we have longitudinal data in this data set, so even if someone kind of drops off our map in the second wave, we know what their tastes were like in the first wave, and we can use these tastes to predict um, whether or not they have a private profile. So we did get some kind of interesting findings, like people who like Dan Brown, for instance, are more likely to have a private profile. Um, people who like Harper Lee are more likely to have a public profile. 
Uh, we have you know findings like this across movies and music. Um, it's hard to know how to interpret these. You know, the, the explanations we come up with are uh, you know largely ad hoc. Um, but this is definitely you know something that might be interesting for people to explore in the future. I remember uh, reading um, William Gibson's Neuromancer many years ago uh-huh. and being so excited about uh, an environment where physical likeness disappeared and you really could connect with people based in the realm of pure, based on pure ideas yeah. and, and, and exist in the realm of pure ideas. To what extent does Facebook enable a realm of pure ideas versus uh, just a place to network with people that in the real world? Well, pure ideas. I mean, um, so you have to be careful with. You know, for for both us and for people interpreting this, I mean, uh, you know, what what do these tastes actually mean? And and I like you, you know, I'm very excited about this is um, about Facebook as opening these new opportunities, and um, you know, having having the space where ideas can be exchanged and taste can be you know displayed. But that last fact is is important itself. That you know when. When people are putting things in their profile, to what extent, uh, you know, did did this reflect their actual identities, their actual preferences versus, you know, just what they want to show to their peers, right? And so, you know, when you're putting a taste in your profile, um, well, whether it's a taste or anything else, an activity you're doing or, or, you know, all these open-ended sections about me, um, you know, you're very cognizant of the fact that other people are viewing this. And so I think, uh, you know, while it very importantly involves the space for ideas, it also, you know, involves the space for presentation of self. Um, right, and so you know the 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 stuff that we're seeing on there is is both a product of of who people are, and you know perhaps also who they think others want them to be. Right. <laughs> right. Right. So, one of the um, points that was raised in the New York Times story mm-hmm. uh, was, I guess, a sort of self-reflexive thought: the idea of, hey, you know, you're doing these studies about whether or not people want to be private or not private on the social network, but is that in and of itself a breach of privacy? Our very studying of these people. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. that was a point raised in the story. What what are your feelings on that? Um, This is all well taken. I mean, it's it's understandable that people would be concerned, uh, you know, about us respecting people's privacy. And and to be honest, uh, this issue of studying the Internet in the first place opens up all new kinds of privacy issues, like... Uh, you know, researchers have for a long time, um, you know, it's, it's fine to study people in public places, right, as, as the um, New York Times article points out, but does the Internet constitute a public space? Uh, you know, these users are online, and, and their profiles are by default public within a given network. And so for someone who belongs to that network, you know, you can see them. If you do not, you can't. Um, so I, I think there's some, there's some interesting, you know, maybe even philosophical questions there about what, what type of space, um, ontological, what type of, of space... Uh, this is. Um, in, in the practical sense of going about studying these, I think the most important thing is, is just to take every possible precaution. I mean, universities have um, uh, human subjects review boards that make sure that all research, uh, you know, is respecting subject privacy. And, um, you know, we, take, we make every effort to, to make sure we're not infringing upon this. Uh, when we actually download our data, um, you know, the first step is, is to encode all of it. So, when I, you know, when I run analyses on these students, I have absolutely no idea what their actual identities are. All I see is a data set with, um, you know, uh, identification numbers and, and variables. And so, you know, the, the university we're studying is confidential. Um, the, the individual identities are stripped, and so there's no conceivable way that, that these data could be tied back to individual students. And so, um, you know, we really do take every precaution to for privacy. Um, just from a from a research standpoint, and I mean, I, I'm gonna, I'm. This is something I'm, you may have thought quite a bit about. 
it seems like there's two types of data that you could aggregate from a study like this. One, you could collect, I guess, self-professed content, you know, what people say their tastes are. And then two, you could collect data on actual activity online. And it seems like the latter would be more valid because it's a measure of something actually occurring versus um, a measure of what someone says is occurring. Yeah. Would you agree or do you distinguish those two data sets? How does that work? Uh, with the data we've used, we rely exclusively on, on, on just the taste, on what they profess as their you know, favorite um, movies, music books. Uh, you know, students have a space to list their activities and so forth, but you know, how, to, how to translate the two kind of become complex. Um, the issue you touch upon is, is, is very big in social science, and, and a lot of researchers have, have argued the exact same thing. Uh, and, and, you know, gone for kind of behavioral measures as well. Um, the trouble is, you know, to what extent does the behavior actually capture your taste, right? Uh, you know, there are a number of reasons you might, say, go to the movies a lot, um, which may or may not be because you love movies. You know, maybe your girlfriend does, or, you know, you happen to have a cinema close by. And so, you know, I, I, I would probably have to come out on the side of, of you know, preferring these, these professed taste measures as opposed to behavioral measures, um, although, of course, keeping in mind, you know, the presentation of self exists. Um, yeah, I, I think people are, are interested in presenting tastes that other people uh, might find favorable and, and you're influenced by this. But at the same time, you know, I think it's very unlikely that you would put something on your profile that you don't actually agree with, right, um, you know, be, beforehand. And so this might create a little bit of, of you know, what we would call measurement error. But in the end, I, I think the, the concept that we're measuring is much more um, close to what we're looking for than a behavioral measure. When you get into the idea of privacy and some of the concerns that you just raised, do you think um, the danger is more uh, letting perhaps marketers or or businesses who have some vested interest in selling uh, consumer product or service having their self-professed data or their behavioral data? I'm sorry. Could you you rephrase that? Do you think – do you think – if an individual was was looking to protect their privacy, yeah, what do you think is more valuable from the individual's perspective, the self-professed data or the behavioral data? Huh. Um, I would say you know behavioral data. Uh, you know, people are people are typically more concerned um, with privacy to the extent that it's it's kind of tied down to a social reality, right? So, uh, for instance. People are often more concerned with, with privacy on Facebook versus other um, online social networking sites because Facebook is is concretely tied down to to you know places in physical space, geez, and um, companies and so forth regions. Uh, whereas a lot of other people on other sites communicate online, and you have no idea you know where they are, who they are, and so forth. Um, so you know, I guess if I were going to you know worry about privacy, I'd, I'd be more worried about people knowing um, you know our exact behavior. So you. Information that, that others could use to, I guess, track me down physically. Uh, you know, when someone provides their taste online, this doesn't strike me as, you know, as something too dangerous. Um, what kind of surprises me is the extent to which students provide online, um, you know, the room that they live in or, uh, you know, their phone number or means of, of, you know, contacting them or finding them. And so I, I think for people interested in privacy, um, you know, that those behaviors might actually be more important. I, I know you're not studying this um, uh right now, but is there any general uh, <clears throat> impression you have of the level of awareness that exists among students today concerning um, the level of privacy that they need to maintain with respect to their online profiles? And maybe not just in Facebook, but I mean, yeah. do you think students are becoming aware of the fact that, you know, they're going to go out and 
get a job someday and somebody's going to Google their name and that may, in fact, affect the impression they make? Definitely. I'm, I'm positive about that. I mean, um, you know, you get these stories popping up in the news, you know, speaking of Barack Obama, uh, you know, where you have <laughs> um, rival candidates, you know, daughters showing up in favor of, of Obama, right? You have news stories where, uh, you know, students posted on their Facebook profile or their blog, you know, uh, information about a party they were having, and all of a sudden the cops showed up. Um, you have employers, you know, looking at students' Facebook profiles and Googling them to find information about them, and it, it's having real consequences, right? And, and you know, this, this gap between the, the virtual world and the social world is, again, um, tightened, and students are very, you know, aware of this. Uh, I think over, over time you see, um, you know, students more likely to raise their, their privacy barriers, uh, a couple of the earlier studies on privacy um, found a surprisingly low uh, rate of private profiles online, whereas when we went in um, over the past several months, we find a very high rate, right? So over time, as, as students become more aware of this, the more likely to be private um, profiles. I think as students are more likely to, uh, or as they get closer to graduating also, this is probably a bigger concern as they're you know, getting closer to the job market, you'll likely find these privacy settings um, bumped up. But I think students are definitely aware of it and uh, you know, take, take extensive steps to make sure that, I guess, this, this image they're presenting online is, is the image they want employers, teachers, um, you know, parents, whoever, to see. Sunday's, Sunday New York Times, in the, actually the Sunday Style section, had a story about a young girl, um, I believe a high school student, who was uh, a victim of some pretty aggressive bullying online. Yeah. And she actually took her life. She committed suicide. And, um, you know, I've got to think that based on the study you're doing, you know, I don't know if you have kids, but when you do have kids, I imagine you'll be pretty sensitive in teaching them about how to use and not use social networking. What advice do you have for parents who don't have your awareness about how they can teach their children how to safely use social networking sites? Well, um, excellent question. Um, I, I think... Actually, first of all, and, and most importantly, I, I think the biggest message is to not overreact. Um, I mean, uh, you know, parents everywhere, um, not just parents, but, but everyone, there's kind of this, this social uproar about privacy and, and safety and so forth. And I think that's very important, but I think often, um, you know, by going too extreme in that direction, you can just have the opposite effect. I mean, you know, this, this site is, is widely used by teenagers, and what's the first thing, you know, they're going to do when your parents tell you not to do something, Right. Um, I, I think, you know, going too far in that direction is, is going to have absolutely no effect. The fact is, you know, students uh, and, and, you know, adolescents everywhere are going to do what they're going to do, what they want to do online. Um, and so given that, I, I, you know, I think it's important to be, to be moderate in, um, in our attitude towards this, but also, you know, focus on the right things. Um, as I mentioned, you know, someone posting their tastes online is, is not going to have, you know, large ramifications. Um, Someone posting uh, information where they could be physically tracked down, you know, I, I think is is more important to to be cautious about. And people posting, you know, their room um, room number online or their or their phone number or you know means by which they can be physically tracked down. Uh, so I think you know those types of things are the most important to focus on. You know, say for parents, you know, for the children. So not to say you know uh, this site is bad, it's dangerous. You could be putting yourself. You know, physical danger of being on here, but you know, just keep an open dialogue with them and, and making sure students know about the extent to which this information is publicly available um, and what possible consequences it might have. But you know, more of a more of a reason, reason, reasoned discussion than this uh, kind of moral uproar. 
So Facebook has become the social networking site du jour, uh, but MySpace was there first, and MySpace yeah. had a, a much bigger population <clears throat> um, originally than Facebook has now. And if you look, if you're a Facebook, if you're a MySpace user, I'm sure you you see a, a lot of spam coming into your account now, and there seems to be a sort of a stigma attached to to MySpace uh, versus Facebook. Can you give us any sort of overview on the differences between the two social networks, how you differentiate them from one another? Yeah, well, I mean, um, just in the, in, in the facts, as you know it, I mean, MySpace came out first. Um, MySpace is, is, I believe, much larger, and they have very different histories, right? MySpace, um, from the start, was open to everyone, and it has a, um, you know, a Prominently on these side are people who go on there with bands, for instance, and try and, uh, you know, maybe just like Barack Obama's doing on Facebook, gain t- uh, maintain support. Um, whereas Facebook was originally limited, uh, what it started at Harvard in 2004, um, and then after that, you know, expanded just to Ivy League schools and then to colleges. And, you know, only just in the past couple of years have people, you know, largely able to access Facebook. And so I think this is, a, you know, very important looking at the history of these two sites. Um, you know that that it, it was originally limited to college students, and this gave it you know kind of a different feel and different population online. Uh, you know the sites are structured differently. Users have a lot more freedom on MySpace um, to do what they want. Uh, Facebook is increasingly going in that direction, adding all these new applications and new features. So it's um, you know, there are important differences there, but I think also over time you see you know users from each kind of you know jumping over, and most people probably still favor one or the other, but. Um, I think those differences are, you know, are not becoming stronger over time. Um, is there's, I mean, both, both sites are interested in getting you know, the largest possible user base, and um, these users are interested in the same thing, right? What's next? Do you think if you were to graph <laughs> the growth of Facebook, um, you know, have, we, have, have they reached the top, and are they on their way down? Are they still going up? Yeah. Uh, it's a dangerous question <laughs> to try and answer, but, um, you know, I... This is something where you were heavily invested in, right? If, if if all of a sudden you know Facebook usership dies off, then we have no data for the, for the next couple of years on this population. But um, you know, I, I do think because uh, you know Facebook's a company, it's interested in making profit. Um, they're obviously doing everything they can to increase this user base, and I've been amazed at, at you know their success with that. I think this um, this addition of applications uh, has been huge. I mean, users are doing all kinds of things online there. Um, you know, not just forming friendships, but they're writing their blogs, they're sharing photos, they're sharing movies, they're playing Scrabble, they're, you know, throwing sheep or whatever the latest application is. And um, I, I really don't see this dying off anytime soon. It, you know, they have a, a monumental growth rate even at this point. And um, it'll be interesting to see how Facebook responds if they continue to try and add new features or, or if what they have right now carries enough momentum to sustain itself for a long time into the future. But I, I certainly don't see um, you know, this dying off anytime soon. And uh, I, it's, you know, it's, it's always hard for it to predict what the next greatest thing is going to be. But um, I think Facebook will try and be there, and they've been extremely successful, obviously, so far. Kevin Lewis, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, where reporters and journalists go on the record about how they use the web to cover the news. For the latest trends, tips, and tactics on how the web impacts corporate reputations, subscribe to our RSS news feed or visit us online at www.ipressroom.com.